Good morning, Lisa. Can you hear me? I can hear you, Veronica. Good morning. How are you today? Wonderful. It's National Public Lands Day, one of my favorite days of the year. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today. So friends and listeners, welcome to Culinary Crossroads. I'm your host, Lisa Helmig. And today with me, I have Veronica Hinke. She is the author of a wonderful book that we're going to talk about today, and it's titled The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking, Dining, and Style. Thank you for being with us today, Veronica. Thank you for thinking of this, Lisa, and for making this happen today. I'm really excited to talk with you. Okay, so this book, you know, I I collect cookbooks, I collect recipes, and so this book contains vintage recipes and cocktails, and I think that's what really drew me in. But really what kept me there and captivated me about this book is the stories of the people's lives. You know, you really captured stories before they sailed on the Titanic and their lives on the ship, as well as if they were survivors, you know, afterwards. And, you know, I'm wondering if that was your, was that your goal all along? I mean, you could have, you could have just went with, you know, the food aspect or of it or the, the people's lives, but you combine both. So can you tell me about that a little bit? Yeah, it definitely was something I planned. I have written about food for many years for Chicago Tribune publications here in the Chicago area, for Wine Enthusiast magazine nationally and other publications. And at the heart of every story, Lisa, it's always about the people. So when I was approaching how to strategize this book, it just seemed natural to look at the people. There were so many remarkable people. And um, just like those chefs and restaurateurs that I've come to know over the years through my weekly stories, I have come to know about some of these amazing heroes who, you know, some of whom did not survive the disaster. Uh, some who did, and the stories of all of them are just remarkable. And each one of them in my book is tied to food. There are chefs, there's a baker, there's information about people who entertained a home. You know, I even looked at people like uh, Major Archibald Butt because he had a very special New Year's Day party at his home in Virginia every year. Uh, he did not survive the Titanic, but I mention him as someone now who uh, I mention him now as someone who uh, was a real culinary enthusiast. He would want to listen to this podcast if he were, you know, living now. He this is the kind of thing that he loved, and every year he had a tradition of serving a baked ham, a Virginia ham, of course, and a really special eggnog, and that was his whole menu, and he had. Hundred, at least 100 people into his home and um, things like that I wanted to highlight because by learning about people and their, their culinary interests and their culinary backgrounds, family recipes and so forth, we can learn more about who they are. Who were those people that we see in depictions like the James Cameron movie and the older movie from the 1950s? Who were those people really? And you know, the most accessible information to us now is the the information about the food. 
That's wonderful. You know, let's talk about let's talk about some people then. In chapter one, you lay out who the wealthiest man possibly in the world was at that time. Can you can you tell us about him and some of the some of the cocktails that are illustrated in that chapter? Oh, you sure started with a great person, Lisa. Uh, John <laughs> Jacob Astor the Fourth. Yes. So many of the things that we know today are because of him. Uh, the red velvet ropes that we see at big events, not so much lately, but for sure through the years, and those red carpets. John Jacob Astor the Fourth was one of the first people to do that, or he might have been the first person actually to start that approach of managing crowds for large events. Um, at six o'clock every evening at the St. Regis hotels around the world, it's been the custom for many years to saber a bottle of champagne in the lobby of the hotel and everyone gets a glass. Um, and it, it was because he started that hotel before he sailed on the Titanic and he loved to do that at his big parties. He would get dressed up in um, traditional French uh, war garb and he would dress up like um, just like you would picture someone like Napoleon and he would saber a bottle of champagne for his guests and he was very ceremonious in the things that he did with, with food and champagne and that's a good example. I was able to participate in one of the saberings in Washington, D.C. at the St. Regis that's right by the White House uh, not too long ago and I think that they're still doing that these days. I don't, I don't know what it, what it's like right now with COVID nineteen. If they're able to continue that tradition, but it's pretty neat that his impression that he made is still um, celebrated. And um, he was one of the first people to, as far as I know, the very first to establish a hotel in a subway station, an entrance to a hotel. He strategized to have his hotel in New York City in the Knickerbocker in an area where he could connect the subway platform to the hotel. And to this day, there's a, a bricked up entryway on a, in a subway platform in New York City that used to lead to the Knickerbocker Hotel. So he was really a, a forerunner in hotel and restaurant management entertaining um, he just definitely needed to be front and center in my book because of all of the um, all of the people he inspired all of the things that he did that are still relevant today that's amazing I do remember those um, those red velvet ropes uh, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago and some of the old theaters when we used to go watch a movie on a Saturday had those so I I recall seeing those in, in my childhood. So it sounds like you've traveled a lot and talked to a lot of people for this book. Could you tell us about your research? Well, that was one of the most fun things about my experience in writing the book is the people that I met. Uh, one of the people that I met through Facebook, actually, I reached out to her through, or actually it was through a, a like a, independent website it wasn't facebook it was through a, a 
what do they call them? The chat blog or where people write about things and there's like a chat going on. And I saw a chat about the baker, the head baker, Charles Jockin. And we see Charles Jockin depicted in the James Cameron movie wearing a baker shirt. I think he might have a baker's hat on and he's running up the deck with Kate Winslet and others and they're they're running up to try to save every last second that they can before they touch those icy waters. And I was very intrigued by that, not just because he's a baker, but because I had always heard the story that he survived because purportedly because he had drank scotch, whiskey. And so I reached out to someone who had responded in a chat room online about her uncle and she had said that it wasn't whiskey that he was drinking, which all these years everyone has thought it is. She confirmed that it was schnapps. And right away I, you know, reached out to her. We had several phone conversations. She explained so much to me that was so interesting and endearing about Charles Jockin. Um, in addition to her, by the way, I'll just mention that there are wonderful resources online now that you can um, research through. Uh, one of them in this case was Charles Jockin's uh, testimony during the inquiry in looking into the Titanic uh, disaster, the investigations and his inquiries are online. There's also a lot of old information on newspapers, old newspapers. But I really wanted to talk to the relatives of these people. What did they know? I knew they had to know something that the whole world didn't know because yet, because I knew I had grown up with stories of a man who lived in the area where I grew up and people knew things about him. They knew he had a popcorn wagon before he sailed in the Titanic. They knew that he lived in the T.B. Scott mansion and um, his name, by the way, is Dan Coxon. He was in steerage class. But using that just as an example of how I knew that these family members would know something from their ancestors. And this woman shared a lot with me. She said that Charles was actually trained as a French pastry chef. He made beautiful sugar that was spun to look like a cradle for a christening cake. Um, He did a lot of really ornate decorative things. He had uh, trained to be a pastry chef. But uh, as was the case when the Titanic sailed, everybody wanted to get a gig on that ship. It was the most magnificent ship and people were willing to take a step down or work in a different capacity much more than they would have normally been. So Charles became the the head baker of the Titanic. And um, I'm really inspired by him in many ways. He did survive. He held on so tight on a lifeboat that all they could do was hold the hand of one of the guys that worked with him. Um, And there's so many other things that he did. But one of the things that keeps me inspired every day is that on the Thursday before the Titanic sank, he looked up his assignment for which life raft he would be in if there was a disaster. And then on the night that the Titanic struck the iceberg, Charles Jockin 
uh, went right up to the deck to help board the lifeboats, get everybody in the lifeboats or as many people as they could. Um, as we know, there weren't enough lifeboats, so not everyone was able to get in one, and Charles was one of those people. Um, when the time came for him to receive the command to enter the lifeboat he had been assigned to, he did not receive that command. Someone else did. And that is when he went down to his quarters to have a nip, as he put it, to the uh, British inquiry during the investigations. He said he had a nip, and we can assume, knowing that that was schnapps, according to his great niece that I spoke with, that he might have had a still in his crew quarters that was not uncommon at the time, and he would have had access to fruit and yeast and things to make schnapps. Um, because as, as even though there were, you know, cases of liqueurs and different alcohols aboard, he certainly would not have had access to those to uh, be able to have a nip from there. So, so he went down to have a nip and he came back up and he, he took action. That's what I love about this man. He um, thought, what can I do? I'm not just going to think I'm going to do something and he saw all of the deck chairs that were on the Titanic deck like we talk about rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic and we talk about things that taking action and doesn't matter um, so the deck chairs that you hear about he saw those and he thought you know if I can get all of these in the water when I'm in the water there might be one left for me to hold on to so he tossed all of these really heavy deck chairs. They probably weighed about 100 pounds. He tossed a whole bunch of them into the water and many people were able to cling to those to try to survive. Um, so I just love that story because he didn't just sit and sulk and let fate take its way with him. He made things happen when he was facing almost certain death and he did survive. Um, he was so cold after he tread water in the, the icy waters for so long that he said that when he got on the Carpathia, they popped the, him into the oven to warm him up like one of my own pies, he said. They popped me into the oven like one of my own pies. And, <laughs> um, you know, he, he went on to work in on ships for many years, moved to New Jersey, opened up a hot dog stand in New Jersey. He was from England. He had worked on ships since he was a little boy and uh, just he just never faltered he was in another disaster in Coos Bay um, when there was a ship that had to be um, evacuated and just a real uh, someone that you can think about when times get tough to, to really keep you going that's an incredible story so just going back to something you said are you suggesting that he was actually making spirits in his cabin? I will say that there were people who were doing that from the research that I found, and it wouldn't be surprising, you know, that maybe it was a scenario where a group of people might have been making spirits and sharing them. Um, but I almost wish I hadn't said that because I would hate to, um, put that out there and yeah. have people think Ill, Ill will of him or you know make him look bad he he doesn't deserve that so um, 
you know, I, I mention it because it's it's a point about um, drinking aboard and things like that, that people were doing that. There were crew members that were doing that on all ships at the time. They had, uh, many of them had makeshift stills. Whether or not Charles was, I have no way of knowing. Uh, it's just an anecdote that I share when I tell this story because it's, it is an aside note about uh, what life was like aboard the ships for many people. Yeah. So in any case, he had access to schnapps and he took his nip and, and maybe that's what sa- helped save his life. And that is an inspiring story. When things get tough, what are you going to do? You're going to throw the deck chairs uh, overboard. And um, that's an incredible story. One of my favorite uh, passengers in, in your book is Margaret Brown. It seems like every time I open the book, I seem to open it to the page of Margaret Brown. And there's a there's a recipe in there called Miner's Casserole. And it reminds me of a recipe um, my mother used to make uh, when I was a child. But there are some things in there that you depict about Margaret Brown that is just fascinating. And one of the, the paragraphs that I love talks about the food cart that she invented, that electric food cart that had different compartments for warming food and cooling food and then cooking food on the spot. And sometimes I think that it's almost like the first food truck. You think today how popular food trucks are. And it just reminds me of of that type of invention. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about Margaret Brown? I'd love to. One of my favorite people from history, one of my most inspiring heroes. And yes, she developed a serving cart uh, at her heart. Margaret's favorite job, uh, you know, aside from being a mom and a wonderful wife for for many years to her husband, um, you know, one of her favorite things in life was entertaining. Margaret loved to entertain. And I grew up with that. Um, I grew up with, I, I was inspired by a wonderful group of women that my mother was friends with who they took that as a uh, that entertaining was a part of their life every month they would have someone in for dinner or a dinner party or have people over and um, have food for them and um, that it really harkens back to that era that Margaret lived in the Edwardian era when the Titanic sailed of people who just took real pride in entertaining and having people into their homes and you know of course now we we've had to curtail a lot of that but um like i mentioned archibald butt earlier with his ham biscuits and um eggnog he he wanted to have people in he wanted to entertain and share his home and hospitality with them and and food and that's just so important i think in life um and so margaret found ways to do that that could make it easier for her and her staff and enliven things a little bit. Um, some of the things that she loved to do, uh, her great-granddaughter told me she would take out all of her books in her bookcase at Valentine's Day time and she would put only red books in. <laughs> and then for St. Patrick's Day, only green books in her bookcase. So she really celebrated holidays in special ways. Uh, she had many recipes and then 
Um, some of the recipes that are in my book are actually um, recipes that were shared in another book about how she grew up. Margaret grew up very, very poor in a um, household where there was very little. And um, her husband did very well in the mining industry. And um, in fact, there was a, a gold nugget necklace that was found at the wreck site of the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean on the floor. And most people think that it was probably Margaret Brown's because of her connections to the the gold mining industry and um, just just a real legacy of someone who came from really nothing and ended up being one of the most, one of the wealthiest, most glamorous women of her day. And even though she had gone through so much and was so glamorous and high fashion and just a a really um, uh, a leader in trends and style at the time. She was one of the leaders also in showing thanks and gratitude to the people that rescued them, to Captain Rostron and his crew of the Carpathia. She organized a group as soon as they were on board, as they were continuing the rest of their journey on the Carpathia back to, um, or to New York City. And while she was on board those those days she would organize a committee to thank Captain Rostron. She would follow up afterwards and get people together to do things to acknowledge him and his crew. When she was in a lifeboat, she encouraged the women in her lifeboat to row to keep warm. She set up a schedule. Um, so she was a real leader. She wasn't just, you know, resting on her wealth and laurels. She was, um, a leader of, of real people. What did it mean to you to meet some of the some of the relatives of the characters in the book? I know you did a lot of research and and got to hear more of their stories. Was it personally touching to to hear those stories of some of the the passengers on the Titanic? It was incredibly touching. Lisa, just to be able to talk to Charles Dawkins' great niece who had heard about this man, grew up hearing about this man. Like for me, Dan Coxon, I heard about him since I was knee high to a grasshopper. You know, he's the man from our town who was on the Titanic. Um, these people heard these stories firsthand from people who know, knew Margaret Brown and who knew. Um, Charles Jockin and real stories. These are real people. People love the James Cameron movie so much and I know why. It's just so moving and I really wanted to to find out more about who these people are that we see and um, other than just seeing them at a dinner table talking about, you know, the news of the day or what have you but who were these people? What were their traditions like uh, without being able to meet with Margaret Brown's great granddaughter and we we never have met in person but over the phone I never would have known that she did that with her bookcases um, I also did things like I visited the Margaret Brown house in Denver which is really a neat experience if you ever get a chance 
go and visit Margaret Brown's house. It's a beautiful brownstone with a really fantastic front porch and uh, Victorian uh, era furnishings and the design of the house. I, I want to say it's a Queen Anne, uh, just really, really special place. And people that love her are there sharing her story. There is a wonderful gift shop with items, uh, books and so forth about Margaret Brown. Um, I, I just can't say enough good things about her. Is there in, is there, I know we've talked about a, a couple of individuals in, in the book. We've talked about Charles and Margaret and John Jacob Astor the fourth. Is there another individual that really sticks out to you? Yeah. Um, they're definitely there. Gosh, there are so many. And, um, in the, I know I've mentioned a little bit about Dan Coxon, um, that who I grew up hearing about. And he is the reason I was able to tailor this book the way I did around the people because he was my starting point. Um, I was able to work with the Merrill Wisconsin Historical Society to learn more about him and the popcorn wagon that he operated in Wisconsin. I found out things like, um, you know, he was, he went out and he went shopping he bought a fur coat to go to London, which is where he was from. And, um, and he went on his trip and he was coming back and he was on the Titanic coming back. And one thing I found out through my research, I, you know, I always thought I knew everything there was to know about him. And through researching for the book, I found out that he was friends with H.V. Coltonborn and, um, I went to school for journalism. I, I've worked in journalism my whole life. Um, so H.B. Kaltenborn was really a huge um, figure in journalism history to me. He was back in the 1930s. He was like the Walter Cronkite um, or you know, the people that we grew up with that we recognize as really um, notorious journalists. Um, we don't hear so much about him anymore, but he was friends with Dan Coxon, the popcorn vendor from Merrill. They actually lived in Merrill together. H.B. Colchenborn uh, lived in Merrill. That's where he grew up. And um, he was going to meet him at uh, the pier, Chelsea Pier, near Chelsea Pier, and where Chelsea Pier is now in New York City. And I think it's absolutely one of my favorite things about my research, I stumbled upon a letter that was published in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle a few days after the Titanic sank. And at that time, H.V. Kaltenborn was the dramatics editor of the Eagle, and he had received a letter from Dan, who was the third class passenger of the Titanic. And the letter had just basically said when he was gonna arrive at what is now Chelsea Piers, in, uh, on the Hudson River where the Titanic was going to dock and could HV come and meet him there and, and go with him to Brooklyn where HV lived and HV must have gone running into his editor's office the next morning when he received this letter because it was a letter from the grave it, was, it had been written before the Titanic sunk and it had been mailed at one of the docking stations before the Titanic headed out across the Atlantic. Uh, and 
of course they printed it in its full entirety in the paper and when I found this I was just astounded I thought wow I had no idea after all these years that Dan a popcorn vendor who like you mentioned food trucks uh, one of the world's first food trucks was popcorn uh, wagons the the crater wagon red and yellow like Dan had Mm -hmm. on Main Street and so up basically a, a food truck vendor and he and HV were friends and what a tragic story you know you receive this letter from your friend that you're planning to meet in a few days and it ends up being you know he lost his life on the Titanic um, so I was very moved by the story I it was incredibly powerful because I don't think many people knew about that at the time, uh, about the connection, about the fact that Dan had written this letter uh, and it had been received. Um, you know, there were many letters that I found. There was one letter that I uh, I found from a man who wrote to his wife about the lunch that he ate in first class aboard the Titanic. And I definitely wanted to feature him Adolfa Selfeld and talk about the lunch that he had and his incredible story about how he went on. He survived, but he never lived that down. People pointed fingers at him and said, you know, you survived and it was women and children first. And he he couldn't sleep nights, Lisa, because he was so ridden with guilt. Um, and again the strategy for me was to include him in the story because he he loved the food so much that he wrote a letter home after his first lunch about the wonderful pork chop that he had and the spaten beer that he washed it down with and just all those things that culinary enthusiasts love to hear about i i can certainly relate with that veronica because i can probably write stories detailed stories about particular meals that i've had that might go back, you know, 15, 20, 30 years as well, or even longer than that. And I think it's just in our blood being a culinary enthusiast and just really diving into, you know, menus and recipes and vintage recipes and and what it means to um, people's lives and traditions. So we've talked a lot about uh, some of the individuals that you highlight in the book. And these stories are so captivating. And so friends and listeners, uh, when you hear this podcast, as captivating as Veronica has been, you will be completely enthralled in reading about the individuals that she depicts in her book. But I want to move on and and talk about um, some of the food now. The first class menus. Um, one of the things that blew me away in your book was the menu, the, a typical menu for breakfast and all of the choices that would have been um, on the menu for somebody to choose in first class. The list was enormous. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, this time of year, my mother used to make back, baked apples and um, it's apple season. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was our dessert and it was a huge dessert and that was one of the things that you could eat in first class for breakfast with a whole bunch of other items that you could choose whereas in in steerage in third class like where dan coxon was gruel was on the menu 
in some cases for some meals. So you'd go from gruel to these very elaborate, fancy meals in first class. 11 courses for dinner uh, with things like a palate cleanser um, item on the menu, which of course is the very celebrated, now it's incredibly celebrated, the Punch Romaine, which was a slushy drink to clear your palate with a little bit of, it's like a lemon sorbet kind of idea, but with slushy ice and um, champagne and uh, it's delicious and it's become very popular in recent years especially among people who love titanic foods Um, so very lavish you'd have to pace yourself there'd be you know several different uh, meat entrees that you could choose from or try them all Um, dinner in first class was an event on the last night of the Titanic, Captain Smith was honored at a dinner um, that someone had for him, and several uh, people that were very well known around the world were um, part of that dinner. And I don't think you'd necessarily recognize those names right now, but back in those days, it was definitely um, a sort of a, a dinner of champions. You know, everyone that you'd recognize in People magazine of today uh, would would have been in that dinner. And uh, people would visit for hours. You know, meals would go on for a very long time. Um, One of the things that I really wanted to uh, reinforce in this book is that this was the pre-prohibition years. So the, the things that you'd get at the bar the cocktails are many of the drinks that got lost in time during prohibition so it was 1912 when the titanic sailed and it was right a few years before 1920 and the the years of prohibition and those years those edwardian years right before prohibition were um noteworthy for drinks like the Rob Roy, the Robert Burns, the Clover Club, um, drinks, the Bronx, which is an orange juice drink with gin. Um, You know, those drinks got lost in time. We are starting to hear more about them now, and I'm really happy about that because they're wonderful drinks, not just in how they taste, but how they really evoke history. And the the stories that we can learn through that, like the Clover Club was invented in Philadelphia, but popularized really and really made uh, people notice it at John Jacob Astor IV's Waldorf Astoria. And in fact, it's the, the hotel where I had my first Robert Burns drink. I love the whole story of the Robert Burns. It's named after the poet Robert Burns, many people believe. Um, and he was from Dumfries, Scotland, long before the Titanic sailed. But the first violinist on the Titanic, uh, part of the band that played on, like we've heard so much about, he also was from Dumfries, Scotland. And so I love to highlight the Robert Burns cocktail and how it would have been popular aboard the Titanic because there's that connection to Dumfries. Um, I had my first Robert Burns cocktail in New York City at the Waldorf Astoria in 2015. And when I ordered the drink, I was so surprised 
the bartender served it with a cookie, a little sh- a shortbread cookie. And I thought, well, what is this? Well, he explained to me that that is the tradition to serve a shortbread cookie with a Robert Burns cocktail. And these are the kinds of things, Lisa, that, you know, we don't know about, like people used to know about years ago, because when prohibition happened, everything kind of went out the window. And, you know, all those things were, I think people like me and with my book and other people are trying to bring those things back. So lots of traditions, Um, you know, there were dishes that you wouldn't recognize today, like the celery dish. There was a special dish for the celery on the table. Um, Those kinds of things are what I hope my book helps breathe some life back into. That's uh, the shortbread and, and the Rob Roy. That is an incredible tradition. Was there a certain way that it should be eaten while you're drinking the, the Rob Roy? Or was it, could you tell us about that? That's a really good question. I've never heard if they're if it's, you're supposed to eat the cookie before or after or during. I guess I've always just kind of munched along with it. Yeah. As, as I drink um, the Robert Burns cocktail, I just kind of have it, you know, with it. I, I love to have that on Robert Burns Day, which is January 25th, I think. Um, there's a whole Robert Burns meal of haggis and Taddies and Neeps and things that are really uh, better known in, in Scotland for foods. I, I didn't know. That, yeah, I didn't know that there was a Robert Burns Day. Yeah. I, I can't imagine being uh, some of the individuals that had a plan for all of the cocktails and all of the meals. Your book talks about there was over there was 12,000 bottles of wine in the wine cellar and over 800 bottles of spirits and and then how many pounds of asparagus and spring peas and vegetables and meats and eggs and it was it's just an incredible task to think about everything that needed to be aboard that ship to plan for those meals yes and I love realizing through my research how you know they thought like we do nowadays seasonally lots of English spring peas like you mentioned in asparagus rhubarb which was you know England is a little bit more um, has the the climate is a little bit more um, hospitable in early spring the Titanic sailed in April and so at that time rhubarb wouldn't be in season in the United States but it probably would be coming up in um, in England and so they had rhubarb on the menu um, I love rhubarb so I wanted to kind of delve into the history of rhubarb a little bit and I included some information in the book about um, how rhubarb was introduced to the United States in the 1700s by um, a man named Bartram and you can still go to Bartram's gardens in Philadelphia so I kind of I would I loved going down those sort of rabbit holes of food topics like well what's the history of rhubarb you know if they had it a hundred years ago um, where did it start and um, we also did some 
my my editor and I worked on some studies of things like tripe. Tripe was on the menu in third class. And tripe is the stomach of a cow. A cow mm-hmm. actually has um, three stomachs. And one of the stomachs, I can't remember which one it is, but one of it is um, where tripe is from, where it's made from. And so, you know, we talked earlier about the people that I met through the research. And one of the very dear friends of mine that I'm still in touch with every day is someone I found through Facebook who had a tripe recipe, her grandmother's tripe recipe. She lives in Johannesburg, South Africa. And I I asked her if I could include her grandmother's tripe recipe because think about it, Lisa, where would you get a tripe recipe where, you know, you could include it in a book? So it worked out perfect to include hers. And we talked about tripe. Uh, The same thing with Welsh rarebit. Mm-hmm. There was a, a traveling companion to the Spencer family, Elise Lurat, and I love Elise's name, she, or, or story. She survived the Titanic. Uh, she uh, was traveling with an uh, ancestor of Princess Diana's, one of the Spencer ladies, and she was uh, a companion to her, and she had a menu with her when she um, survived the Titanic, she kept it with her and she had scratched out Welsh rarebit. So my editor said, let's try to get a Welsh rarebit recipe. And we included a recipe from Tea and Sympathy in New York City and also from a pub in New York City, two different ways, Welsh rarebit with beer and Welsh rarebit without. And, so we just took those little cues from uh, the stories and delved deeper into each culinary topic. One of my favorite things to make that reminds me of tradition and family is puff pastries. And my grandmother used to make uh, a puff pastry for dessert at all of our holidays. Recently, I got my hands on a vintage cookbook from uh, my sister-in-law. It's my, uh, it was a cookbook that was owned by my husband's grandmother. And there's a puff pastry recipe in there as well. And uh, surprisingly, it's not a sweet recipe. It's a savory recipe. And she filled it either with uh, chicken salad or tuna salad. And one of the recipes that I love in this book is another puff pastry recipe that's not sweet, it's savory, and it's, it's, it's a chicken dish made with chicken thighs, and it's got a thick sauce, and it's something that I am going to try in the future because it's kind of right up my alley, and uh, I can't wait to try it. But the puff pastry is something that, that kind of travels through time, like many of these recipes. They travel through time, and they can be served different ways, but I think you're right what you said earlier. It just really illustrates the people's lives and, and how they lived and and gives you a sense of what life was like back then in the style. Exactly. And it's just I feel like you can't get much more personal than through foods. And Lisa, I gotta tell you, you've got me so inspired. I wanna do more with puff puff pastry during the holidays and I'm going to use that recipe again to do that so so happy to hear your story thank you you know food is it's so much about legacy and 
learning about these people's lives in your book is so captivating. And I really uh, encourage our friends and listeners to get a hold of Veronica's book, The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking, Dining, and Style. It is a wonderful historical book and the lives of the people uh, that she depicts in this book is just truly amazing. And the bonus is there are so many different recipes um, and cocktails. I love the cocktails in chapter one and learning about those famous cocktails, like you said, before prohibition. It's just been an absolute joy to have this book and to read um, all of the history. And I really want to thank you, Veronica, for taking the time and talking about your book and the stories. Lisa, thank you. I just appreciate so much that you appreciate this book and the topics. And I love how these topics bring people together. And it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Could you tell us if people want to find your book? How can they find your book, Veronica? Well, you can contact me through my website. Um, It's veronicahinke.com. My last name is spelled H-I-N-K-E. There are many ways to purchase the book through Amazon and so forth, but I mentioned my website and emailing me because I would love to mail you out a personalized copy or copies. So um, I can coordinate with you on that individually if you would like to send me an email or if you're not concerned about a personalized copy, um, you can go ahead and order through uh, Amazon Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Um, and, you know, if you have any trouble finding the book, send me an email and let me know, and I can make sure that we get you a copy. You know, you mentioned the personalization of the book, and my book from you is personalized. And if I can, I'd like to read it. It says Dear Lisa, I hope these stories of these incredible people are as inspiring to you as they are to me. I'm so glad I met you in D.C. Veronica Hinky. Oh, that's, thanks for reading that. Brings back good memories of our time in D.C. And just really excited to see more of your, hear more of your podcasts. Well, I hope we can join again on a future podcast. There's so much more content that we can dive into in this book alone. And I think there's probably other topics that we could we could pick up on too as well, Veronica. And just thank you for your time. Thank you for your effort to create this book. And I hope so many people enjoy it as much as I did. I hope so too. Thank you, Lisa. Okay. Bye-bye, Veronica. Okay. Bye-bye.